The book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, was published in the mid-80s. And it was, went, went right to the top of the bestseller list because for the first time, here was a publication that outlined all that took place in the nine months before a birth. And this was not really general knowledge to most people. This is the kind of information that people only knew if they had trained in it, if they'd paid money to read these kind of books to find out what exactly happens in the nine months before a person is born. I think one of the reasons it went to the top of the bestseller is that it dispelled a lot of fears for pregnant women. Here they could read this book and have a sense, okay, this is normal, this is how it's supposed to go, or these are the kind of tests that you do at this stage of the game, or these are the kind of things, the questions that you can ask because this is what's taking place. What to expect when you are expecting became a sort of Bible, if you will, for pregnant women. And it continues to be published. I was reminded of this book came to my mind in reading today's lesson. What do you expect when you're expecting the Messiah? I'm not trying to make light of John's question in our gospel lesson today. No, to the contrary, I want to help us acknowledge and to be in touch with the weightiness of John's question. He is in prison. That's the holding spot for anyone who's going to go to trial. The odds he knew not of what would come about whether he would be exonerated or be executed. But it was from prison that he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or are we to wait for another? That was John's question. After John had dedicated his life to preparing the way for the Messiah, He'd been out in the wilderness and welcomed crowds and proclaimed that, yes, indeed, the Messiah is coming. Come and repent. Prepare a way for the Lord. And now here he is in prison, and he wonders out loud, sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for, or are we to wait for another? I can only imagine the fear and the questions that John had from prison. And Jesus answers John by telling his disciples to remind him of what he sees and hears. That the deaf can hear, that the blind can see, that the lame can walk again, that the lepers are cleansed, that the dead are given new life, that the poor are not oppressed by their poverty. Remind John of this, Jesus says to his disciples. And then I'm reminded that we do indeed have a book that tells us what to expect when you're expecting the Messiah. It is the stories from Scripture, and even the stories that we have of those who have lived their lives following Jesus, that remind us of what to expect when you're expecting the Messiah. You see, we have the benefit of being post-resurrection people, and John the Baptist didn't see it from that perspective. But we know the stories of what Jesus has done beyond himself, how it is that we know him to be the Messiah. We can read in the early chapters of Acts, in the third chapter of Acts, about Peter and John who go into the city and there's a man there who's begging for some coins. And they say to him, Peter says to him, 
I don't have gold or silver to give you, but what I do have, I offer you. He says to the man lame from birth, in the name of Christ, stand up and walk. And the man does. He stands up, he takes his mat, and he walks. We have this story. John the Baptist didn't have that. So scripture is filled with it, not only in the First Testament, but in the New Testament. And we also have the gift of stories throughout our own day. Here was an example in Acts of where the lame now walk. But remember the story of Martin Luther King Jr. in the middle of that night when he got a call with a threat on the other end of the phone, promising that he would suffer the consequences for speaking out about racial inequality. The person on the other end of the phone in those wee hours of the morning threatened Martin Luther King Jr.'s family, his wife and children. And Martin couldn't go back to sleep after that. He went down to his kitchen and he made some coffee and he poured it and sat there with his head in his hands thinking, how can I get out of this? <laughs> I'm just a pastor. I preach at a local church in town. I don't want to be out in front of everybody talking about this. He was in his early 30s. And it was in that moment that he heard a voice say to him very clearly, stand up for justice. I will be with you. The deaf can hear. I'm reminded also of a story of one of my dear friends, a colleague in ministry, Carol. She tells of a time early in her life when she had finished seminary. It was in the 70s and women couldn't yet be ordained in the church. And so she decided to keep herself busy by becoming a chaplain at a hospital. She was up at the General Hospital in Boston. And she was assigned to the pediatric ward and to the heart um, unit, cardiac unit. She made her rounds every day visiting people, and as you can imagine, most of them were in extreme crisis situations. And she had a two-point prayer that she prayed with everyone she met with. The first point was praying for the people to have the strength to let go and to trust the doctors and the anesthesiologists and those that would be doing this healing work of medicine. And the second point of the prayer was for the family who waited. It was a fine prayer, and it worked. In mo you know, she felt like she had something to say, at least in most circumstances. But she also felt like it had some limitations, and she was a little nervous about those even though she wasn't sure what they were. But one day, Harold, who was scheduled for bypass surgery, said to her, come by in the morning and pray with me before I go into surgery. And the morning came. His surgery was scheduled for that day. And Carol felt the ominous responsibility of going to meet him for prayer. She knew her two points, but for some reason it just didn't feel substantial enough. And so she busied herself with some other hospital work, kind of hoping, she admitted to herself, that she might miss him. She checked in with the nurses station at the pediatric unit and then in the cardiac. After she finished that, she decided to go up to the floor where he was going to be having surgery. It was the 11th floor, and she took the stairs. Oh. As she walked up, she said she even practiced in her mind her apology for how she'd missed him. But when she got up there, she saw him prepped and ready for surgery. 
He had his IVs in. All it was that had to happen was for him to be rolled down the hall. And when he saw her, he said, oh, good, I knew you'd come. And she came and took his hand, and they started to pray. She said she only got four to five words into her familiar prayer when something happened. And words came to her for the prayer that she was not even aware of, and she can't even remember. But she remembers holding on to him and him holding on to her. And at the conclusion of that prayer, he said to her, Thank you. I'm better now. She left his room exhausted. She leaned against the wall to catch her breath and decided to go back to the chaplain's office to take a little rest. When she finished her rest, she decided to go and check in. And she went to the cardiac unit looking for Harold, a New England farmer who was scheduled for bypass surgery. He wasn't in the recovery unit. He wasn't in the post-op. He wasn't in his room. And fortunately, he wasn't in the morgue. So she asked about him. And one of the nurses said to her, oh, yes, the doctor. His doctor wants to see you. And she was terrified. At 25 years old, what was she going to say? What did the doctor have to say? What did he want to know? And what was she going to answer him about? But she went to meet him. He said, the doctor said to her, what did you do? She said, what do you mean? He said, when I came to get Harold, he said to me, wait, don't take me in yet. I want another catheterization. I'm better now. He said, so we did the catheterization before we wheeled him in. And I want to show you the x-rays. Here was yesterday, where you see a very clear blockage. And here's today. There is no blockage. Carol didn't know what sense to make of it. What had God done? The dead had been raised. She didn't talk about that for five or six years because she couldn't figure out how to talk about it. We have these stories in our faith of how the Messiah acts in the world. The Messiah comes to those places of vulnerability, of powerlessness, areas of sickness, and speaks wholeness and health into them. That's what we're to expect when we're expecting the Messiah. And we have those scriptures, we have those stories from scripture, and we have those stories in our collective lives, illustrations of where it is that the Messiah comes, because that is where the Savior comes, in the places of vulnerability, of our, places where we're afraid, of wh where we know our incapabilities. Jesus asks us to come to those places to meet him there. Because that is where the Messiah is. And I imagine that when that moment comes when any one of us has to give an account for the life that we've lived, and we start to tell the reasons why we didn't do this or that, we try to justify it by our own fear or inadequacies, that we'll hear the Savior saying, why didn't you go? That's where I was. I would have met you there. We are invited as followers of Christ, to go to those areas of vulnerability, of our, well, places where we don't know what to do, because that is where Christ meets us. That's what we can expect when we expect the Messiah. It is the Savior, Christ, who meets us in those places. And it is in those places that we meet our Savior. Amen. <laughs>